0: There it rains, literally, glass. Then your question might be, do you have green stars? Yes, we have, but it's, it's a continuous transition. It all depends on the temperature of the star. There exist stars that are still there and that have been created shortly after the Big Bang.
1: Welcome to the 26th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Lene Sein, a professor in stellar and exoplanet astrophysics at KU Leuven. Her work focuses on stellar evolution and the composition of exoplanets. Welcome Lene. Hi, Before we start, my first question is always more or less the same, do you have a fun science fact for our listeners?
0: So you, you just have introduced my field of expertise, which is at one hand, still evolution, and at the other hand, also exoplanets. And maybe something that that people don't know is that we have, uh, let's say, a few years ago, people have thought and are still thinking that there's one of these exoplanets it has a very particular name being HD 189733b. And we think actually that it drains Glass there sideways, so that it's a kind of sideways raining of glass particles. Eh? So to the human eye, this far off planet looks bright blue. Yeah, but but any space traveler confusing it with the friendly skies of Earth would be badly mistaken. And the weather on this world is, is deadly. Eh? It, it has very strong winds, up to some 7,000 kilometers an hour. And whipping out all would-be travelers in a sickening spiral really around the planet. And, but when you would even then get caught in the rain of that planet, it will be more than an inconvenience. Eh? It's dead by 1,000 cuts. Eh? So we have... By looking to the data, we have diagnosed that there are very small silicate particles there, but they are glassy. And so you have this very strong winds with a lot of silicate material, glassy silicate materials. And as such, we hypothesize that that's exoplanets, that there it rains literally glass. So if you would confuse that planet with our Earth, you know, it would be a very bad travel.
1: Yeah, it really sounds like a horrible death. <laughs> it
0: is, it is, so. <laughs> uh,
1: maybe also how do we know that there's that it's raining glass?
0: Well, you you we always build our hypothesis on several pillars. First of all, you need observational data, and then you need to analyze this data, not by only looking what we call to the spectrum. So spectrum is just something that tells you, it gives you fingerprints, chemical fingerprints. And so you analyze this chemical fingerprints at one hand by looking at this data, but at the other hand, you also do extremely de- detailed hydrodynamical and chemical simulations. And then you need one of these simulations that is predicting what we see in this data. And so it's based on this data and then also the, the models that we can tell you something upon chemical composition, wind speeds, temperatures, etc.
1: Before we dive more into exoplanets, I was actually planning on starting with uh, stellar objects. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so starting very broad, what are stars and where do they come from?
0: Well, stars are celestial bodies. eh? A star is born literally in the interstellar medium. So how does it work? You know, you should compare it with, um, if you don't clean the house, you don't clean the kitchen or the living room, you see that your dusty particles, they tend to collide. Similar things happen in the universe. In the interstellar medium, you have also that that particles tend to collide. eh? And so we have that that attraction of the material and they come together. Now, if you have a lot of material together there will be a collapse, a gravitational collapse of the molecular clouds, eh, as we call it. Now, such a molecular collapse, you really come from a very big object to something that is really small. And in that transition, the temperature goes up very uh, a lot. And then the temperature increases above some thresholds, you get nuclear reactions that take place. And when their hydrogen is turned into helium, we call that the nuclear burning. A star is born. So also our sun okay, is one of these stars. It's a very modest star. So it's a quite small star. It's yellow in color. But so we also have big stars that are blue in color, and we have cooler stars that are red in color. Whether the, the small stars, when they are born or red, they live much longer than our sun. And the most heavy objects are blue in color, and they have a very short lifetime since they need a lot of nuclear burning in order to keep, you know, the transition between nuclear burning and again collapse. So the bigger you are, the shorter your life will be.
1: So bigger, heavier stars burn faster, actually.
0: It is. it is.
1: Okay. And... What, what, so you men- mentioned already some types of stars, like blue stars, red stars, yellow stars. How many different types of stars are there?
0: Well, we have them in in, in all kinds of colors, eh? but most of the colors are even if not visible to the eye. Eh? So we, I tell it to you as being a color. It's literally color. You see that, for instance, our sun is yellow in color. But that mainly implies that most of the photons, so the light particles that we get from the sun, are emitted in the wavelength band that is yellow, but it doesn't. It, what it also implies is that the sun has blue photons with a shorter f- uh, frequency and red photons eh, with the longer wavelengths, and so that together it implies that the sun has its peak of the photons in the yellow, and then it has. A less of, a lower amount of, of blue photons and red photons yeah? but so it's we call that the Planck curve yeah? It also implies that that this the red stars think upon a flame yeah? when you have a flame it's hotter in the blue side than in the red side yeah? So hotter implies a blue color. And so then your the question might be, do you have green stars? Yes, we have, but it's it's a continuous transition. It all depends on the temperature of the star.
1: And is it then also possible to have more or less invisible stars that are burning in the spectrum that we cannot see with the naked eye?
0: Well, yeah, they are very small. Um, we have also what we call brown dwarfs. These are more or less failed stars. They were too, too small to really start that nuclear burning at the inside. Uh, and yeah, also the smaller the star is, the the less probable it is that we will detect it.
1: So, in terms of how you said it before, it's like stars are the coalition or, or the colliding of dust in the in space.
0: Dust and gas. Dust and gas. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. there's
1: not enough dust and gas for those small stars, so they don't they don't have enough mass to ignite.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so you mentioned the. The sun is a yellow star but what does that imply for example how how long will the sun be there for
0: okay the sun this age the current age of the sun is roughly around five billion years and it's midway of its lifetime so we expect it to still live for an extra five billion years eh? so roughly then well, all dependent on the model that you that we are using between eight to 10 billion years, the total lifetime will be for our own sun.
1: Stars undergo a whole evolution. Is there a general evolution or is it really dependent on the different types of stars as well?
0: Indeed. So it's yes and yes to both your questions. So we have a, a, a feeling we know how stars in general evolve, but also dependent on the mass It will be slightly different. eh? So for our own sun, which is currently, as we call it, the main sequence star, later on it will evolve towards a red giant branch star. And red and giant are really the correct words. It will become much larger. It will expand in size and also become much cooler meanwhile. It will change from the yellow color towards the reddish color. Yeah, And so it will enlarge so much in size that even currently we do not know whether it will engulf or not our own Earth. Yeah? Since it's expanding, it's still expanding by a factor 100 or a few hundred yeah? in size. Um, and then later on, when the, the sun has become a red giant branch, stars, roughly twice even, it will die as a small white dwarf. And again, dwarf means it will literally become very small. Why it is it will become, it will at first be very hot, extremely hot, above above 10,000 Kelvin and even much more. And then slowly it will dim and it will cool down. And this is how our own sun will die.
1: So, and it starts by expanding, but why does it start expanding?
0: Well, this has all to do with the nuclear reactions and the nuclear burning that I just explained to you. At some point, at the, the really the core, the center of the star, there will not be enough hydrogen anymore to to burn. And then we have other cycles of burning that will start happening. And in these transitions, you know what happens there is that you have convection and radiation, and altogether, then we can show indeed that this implies an increase in the size of the star in order for some physical law, So in this, that was hydrostatic equilibrium, but that's still to be valid. So you really see the laws of nature, they apply to stars as well. And we see how these laws imply if a star will, will, will become smaller in size or whether it will increase in size.
1: And yeah, so it, it increases by a hundredfold. Is that the same for all types of stars or do some stars even get a lot bigger still?
0: So all it again dependent on the mass. Eh? Um, so there will be, be stars that will become so our sun will become a giant star. We have stars that will become supergiants. Eh? So there will be even a factor 10 or more larger than our own sun when our sun is a giant. Eh? So and these are typically for stars that are that have an initial mass that is larger than our own sun. So our own sun, one solar mass, when you go to eight solar mass stars and above. They will go to the red supergiant phase.
1: As you said, so the, the age of a star or how old it can get depends on the size and the mass. But like, for example, if a star dies young, what is young for a star or what is old for a star?
0: Well, young for a star, for a star is, is even less than a billion years. That's young. It is for these very massive stars. Uh, Long for a star, well, there exist stars that are still there and that have been created shortly after the Big Bang, so roughly 14 billion years ago. These are these very small, tiny stars that don't need a lot of fuel to live, and they are still there. They are beloved. They have an initial mass below roughly 0.8 solar mass. So we know that these stars have evolved much yet.
1: That's insane, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And are there still some questions that we really don't know about the evolution of stars?
0: Many questions. Otherwise, I would not do research, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true.
0: I can spoil you with a lot of of these questions there, but so I have just given you the rough outline of stellar evolution. I just have told you, for instance, that stars at some point will become red giant stars. We also know that during that phase, stars are losing a lot of mass and so just let's go back to the bigger picture so what happened shortly after the big bang is we have had the first stars are born and sometime later the first stars are dying now what is happening as i just have told you is that some of these stars come giant stars super giant stars they lose mass now what does it mean they lose mass it implies that deep inside these stars I just have told you, you had this nuclear burning cycle. So it's a kind of a, of a of a nuclear reactor. So they make new chemical elements. These chemical elements are created deep inside the star. By convective patterns, they go up to the surface of the star. And then you have the mass loss rate. The mass is lost, so you get these newly created elements are injected in the interstellar medium. And stars that are born natural, well, they get these new elements. So, for instance, in the beginning, just shortly after the Big Bang, there was almost no carbon, no nitrogen, no oxygen. Our sun has taken quite a long time before it was born—some, some nine billion years. In that, in that instance, other stars have been born and have died, and have put carbon nitrogen oxygen etc in the interstellar medium so at the moment our own sun you know was born there was already carbon there was already nitrogen there was already oxygen and that is the reason that here on earth we have these crucial building blocks for life then our sun would have been born much earlier short more, shorter after the big bang we wouldn't have had so much carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, so life would not have been possible. so it's thanks to the life and death of other stars that we can live here on our own Earth, that life has been possible.
1: If I understand correctly, all chemical elements are actually the result of dead stars. And more or less, maybe that's an interesting question. Which ones aren't?
0: Well, Hydrogen and helium are, are made in the Big Bang. A little bit of lithium and all the rest comes from the stars.
1: Yeah, so all the heavy elements.
0: Yes, all what we call the heavy elements, indeed.
1: And what happens, for example, when two stars would collide?
0: We think that for, for stars above, let's say, 1.52 solar masses, most of them do have at least one companion, but a companion can be a planet or can be a star. Eh? The the higher the initial mass of the star, the more likely it is it will have a companion. So what is then happening is that these stars, they live together. The evolution of one star can impact the evolution of the other star. And so it might happen, as we were just asking, Jeroen, is that these stars collide. If they collide, you have a lot of other phenomena taking place. We, We see... A spike in the energy, you can have the creation of gravitational waves if they are massive enough, So if you have two Newton-Newton stars or if you have two black holes, etc. So you have a lot of new physics that is happening at the moment that two stars collide.
1: Is it then also possible, because I think it was in Star Wars that there was a planet that had two stars. Is that physically possible?
0: We even have detected some of those planets already. So what might be mm-hmm. that... have two stars and around around either one of those uh, one of these stars or around both of them together you have a planet that is circling around eh? and so then you can have a planet yeah that have two two mornings say it all dependent or or two sunrises let's call it like that eh? all dependent on the position of the two stars with respect to the planet
1: the planet is then circling around the two stars or can it be circling for example more or less in a figure eight or something or what are the possibilities?
0: There are many possibilities, all dependent on the stability of the system. Eh? so I can give many examples. Uh, we the, the planets that has been detected are thought to be circling around one of these stars, but there are many possibilities. And when we co- when it comes to the dynamics you can have many solutions.
1: Uh, what are some of the solutions that we or that you have
0: detected? In terms of binary stars or in general?
1: You can do both if you want.
0: So what we we recently have been discussing quite in detail in the literature is that, um, well, let's go back to the sun, and the sun will will become a red giant star. And so for a long time, it was thought that most of these lower mass stars, they don't have companions. But what we have seen in our data is that when you are looking to the signatures of these stellar winds, we do see specific patterns. We see that there are in the stellar winds of evolved stars of these giant stars, we see spiral-like structures, we see kind of disc-like structures, we see many things, many morphologies. And the only way to explain these morphologies is by hypothesizing that these winds are shaped by companions, so that these are not single stars, but they have a stellar or a planetary companion that is circling around them. And while the, the, the old star is losing mass, the other one goes around it and is really shaping the signature of that mass. Yeah? And so this is something that we have clearly seen in, in, in our data two, or three years ago, and that is not really changing the field since it, it implies that some of the diagnostics that we have been deriving understand stellar evolution. For instance, the strength of that loss rate are just one. Yeah? So we really have to rethink and remodel a lot of our, a lot of the stars that we know of.
1: And stars at at the end of their life, they can become supernovas, but can also turn into black holes. Is that the difference between mass again, or is there something else at play here why they have so different lifetimes?
0: Well, for stars that indeed that are more massive than roughly eight solar masses, they go to the supernova phase, and then all dependent on the particular conditions they will either become a black hole or a neutron star and I say particular conditions this all implies when how much mass has it lost Etc cetera, etc cetera. there are some details we don't understand yet for instance the, the interaction with its companion since we know it will have a companion and so all dependent on, on the, the particular environment and particular mass it still has we have a black hole or, or a neutron star
1: what is like one of the major breakthroughs that you foresee for this type of research for stellar evolution?
0: In the near future, it will be done. Under- well, it might sound boring, eh? but it will be the, <laughs> the understanding of really that binary interaction. How does it work, and how much, for instance, mass of one star can be accreted by the other star? And so we, we need to understand that physics and that chemistry properly. If we want to do decent predictions in terms of uh, gravitational wave uh, events, if we want to say something upon supernova explosions, etc.,
1: doesn't sound boring to me at all, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>.
1: <laughs> so if I understand, you want to know how much of also heavier elements in one star can actually come from another star. Is that correct?
0: That's a broad view of stellar evolution. Indeed, you really you need to understand what individual stars are doing to extrapolate that then for your full population and tell you something upon the big picture. Huh? It's a bit, you can also compare it a bit as as with a fruit fly. you If if a fruit fly flies over the market for one day, the fly has a kind of a, a view on on the fact that people or born, and then they die, and you have some sampling of your population. This is also what we do. And we have the current stage. We see stars at different evolution. And by looking at that, we can give you the general picture upon what are stars doing. So I don't need to understand all stars. I need to understand the sample of them. And then I can tell you something about stellar evolution.
1: Imagine that we have solved this puzzle, and you know how much of heavy elements and one star is coming from another star. What will that tell you?
0: Well, one of the big questions we are still after is understanding, let's say the evolution of the table of Mendeleev. eh? We all have seen the table of Mendeleev when we were at at secondary school. eh? And so, but we see there, as I just have told you that that the chemical evolution is changing from element to element and we would like to have a better understanding on how that happens. So that's really going, yeah, go deep, are yeah, delving deep into some fundamental understanding of our universe.
1: Is it then also looking into why we have different isotopes of different chemical compositions? Um, maybe just in general, to know, so like isotopes that's For example you have carbon 12, carbon carbon 13, carbon 14, so it's the same element but they have a different type of neutrons. Is that also what you're looking into?
0: For instance we use not carbon but we use the oxygen isotopes to really tell you something on the age of some stars since in these nuclear burning cycles some of the isotopes are preferred more than the other and so by looking then to the ratio of these oxygen isotopes we can really, let's say, age date our stars. That's one of the ways how we use isotopes to tell you something on the life of the, on the age of a particular star. And also we can use that to, to determine the mass of the star, for instance. That's also another another way of using these isotopes.
1: Do you know, or is there a simple way to explain why, carbon? Why, for example, we have carbon-12 most of the time and not carbon-13 or oxygen 16 and not carbon, uh, oxygen 18.
0: That's again, that's going back to the same thing. It it's this nuclear burning In This nuclear burning, you have not one reaction that goes to the other reaction. You have several reactions that can take place all dependent on the particular conditions inside the star. And so you have not only the nuclear burning, but then you need also these convective patterns that bring these elements created deep inside the star towards the surface. And so all dependent on on the mass and on the efficiency of each of these processes, you have have as a consequence that some of these isotopes are more preferred than other ones.
1: I just think it's so interesting because we have these different isotopes and when we study it, they just tell us there are isotopes, but we never get told why there are different isotopes. And that's so interesting that you're actually looking into this and how this works. So now we have our heavy elements those can be used actually to form exoplanets how do we look for exoplanets to use the transit methods and maybe also explain the method if you can
0: there are various methods to detect planets eh? the, the, so you, you mentioned you now mentioned one that is most frequently used but let's say the first detections were not a transit method eh? so what what if you, I, you can see my hands, also. if you have two, st- two planets around a star, the planet goes around the star. But there is gravitational attraction, and eh? that's the, the, also the, the laws of Kepler. The laws of Kepler tell you, indeed, the planet goes around a star eh, with the planet in one of the focal points, ah, oh, with the star in one of the focal points. But what is also happening is that that small planet is really interacting with the Gravity does have a gravitational interaction with the star. So while the planet is going around, the star is also moving. Like this. You see this happening. So the first planets that have been detected were not detected since we did see the planet, but since we did see the mother star turning around. And when a star is turning around, you have if the light comes towards you, it's blue shifted. If it goes away, it's redshifted. eh? You you, you, you remember potentially the Doppler effect. We have the similar thing here. So what we did see is that when we were looking to the spectra of these stars, we did see the spectral features continuously changing in a very regular way. And this was just the cause of that was the fact that that star was turning around its own around the, the, the common center of mass. And this is how the first planets have been detected. The first exoplanet around a solar type star was detected in 1995 with that kind of technique. Now, you were also mentioning now the transit method. The transit method is a specific method that only can be used if the planet is really transiting. It means that it passes your line of sight. So when you then have the star and then you have this little planet that comes around, it dims a little bit the light of the star and it's a really extremely small fraction i'm talking upon one out of a million that it dims the light so when the planet transits you see slightly less photons from the from the star and when it goes away yeah? and so what you continuously see is you see a very small dimming in the light and then that dimming comes back yeah that's the transit method and then all dependent, so you can look at the transit method at a particular frequency. Let's do, do it simple. You look in it in the blue, and you look at it in the red, and you will see that the dimming is slightly different in the red channel than in the blue channel. And all dependence on dependent on that difference, I can tell you something upon the chemical composition, upon the fluffiness of the planet, of its atmosphere, etc. Uh, So we can use the transit method at different wavelengths. And so we combine information of different wavelengths and that tells you something on the atmosphere of the exoplanet.
1: That wobbling, I I assume that also depends on the mass of the star and the mass of the planet. Uh, If there's like a really small planet and a really big star, I don't think that will have a big effect.
0: So for instance, our earth eh, it does imply, or earth, causes an extremely small wobbling of our own sun. When we would look at our own sun from another planet, we would mainly see the wobbling caused by Jupiter and not by by our own Earth. So the more massive the planet will be, the more pronounced that wobbling around the common center of mass will be.
1: And you also already mentioned it, that that's actually that we might have gotten wrong in the past. So is it right that every star can have exoplanets or at least something swirling around it?
0: yeah yeah we we know thing that that for sure for not not for sure but we let's say most of the stars above 1.5 solar masses will have at least one planet we think so in general we think that yeah that that's that's a rough answer there. There will always be a planet with a, a star without a planet. and that can also happen. We also have lonely planets that were formed out of the debris and all the debris disk and then were, were kicked out. that also happens. But that's the rough answer there. Most of the stars do have a planet
1: combining what we've talked about, we have different types of stars. Can every type of star have exoplanets, or is there also some limit to that?
0: We don't know yet. We're currently building up what we call the population statistics. It, it seems, again, that that the higher the mass of the star, the more likely it will be that it will have a planet. But, yeah, we currently have a detection of, let's say, some 5,000, 6,000 exoplanets. But there is quite a bit of a bias in this detection. Bigger planets are detected more easily than smaller planets. If a planet is more closer to its whole star, it will also be detected more easily. And so we correct for these biases, but even then there are quite some uncertainties in our answers. And so currently, it's not yet, I would not say that there is any firm answer to your question. There will be dependence on on mass, there will be dependence on the chemical composition of where the molecule the chemical compositions are clouds, but we are still you know we are still building up our knowledge there.
1: Based on these methods that you mentioned, what can we know about exoplanets? So you already told us we can have some idea of the chemical composition and the fluffiness. Uh, is there something else we can know as well?
0: Well we, we we know quite a bit already on on the dynamics on the temperature, the wind speeds, the chemical compositions for us in particular for planets that go into transit. Uh, this is something that we can start studying in detail as of, as of a few years. And in particular now with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, roughly two years well, one and a half years ago. Um, or even longer, No, one and a half years ago. So this is what we can start looking at. What we also do is from this population statistics that we have on planets, is trying to build up our understanding on how do planets actually form And how do they evolve? eh? Are some of these planets, for instance, I was just telling you something on these evolved stars in the beginning of the podcast. Well, detecting planets around these giant stars is extremely challenging. We even didn't know how to detect them. eh? But what we now have done, let's say, a few years ago, is we have started detecting planets not around these giant planets, but around the next stage, the white dwarfs. So we know that planets can survive the giant phase, are not kicked out. Part of them, some of them will be engulfed by the host star, but not all of them. So just by looking then to the next stage, we can infer something on the evolution, formation and evolution of planets in the, pre, in, the, in the former stages.
1: We have been talking about heavy elements and exoplanets. And it actually brings me to one of your papers, and I think it also touches up on the fun fact you mentioned earlier. So, the title of the paper is "SO2 Silicate Clouds, but No CH4 Detected in a Warm Neptune." That's a paper you co-authored, and yeah, maybe start with the beginning. What are warm Neptunes?
0: A warm Neptune? Well, it's it's a pen. So, WASP-107b is a planet with the size of a Neptune. But uh, no, with 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 the mass of a Neptune, sorry, but the size of Jupiter. It's much larger than Neptune. Warm is for us. Warm is a temperature around, let's say, 500 degrees Celsius. I would say it in Celsius. Now that's easier to understand. Uh, so you have cooler planets. You have hotter planets. Warm is, you know, it's roughly defined. Yeah, let's say around 500 degrees Celsius. Uh, so that's that's a rough. Outline of wasp 107 b so as Neptune but much larger in size, so the atmosphere is very fluffy, not dense at all, and its temperature, in the, let's say, in its atmosphere, is around this five hundred degrees Celsius.
1: So basically, you say you found silicates and not methane. Methane is also a common greenhouse gas on Earth. So how how does that happen?
0: Well, yeah, well, it's a good question. You are expecting so, with James Webb. We are expecting to see methane quite prominently in quite a lot of data. And much to our surprise, we don't detect it. So we now try to understand why not detecting it. One of the possible hypotheses there is that these planets are much hotter even at the inside than what we were detecting, or what, what we were thinking. I was saying you that you have a temperature around 500 degrees Celsius in the atmosphere, but when you go towards the interior of the planet, the temperature increases. Eh? What might happen is that the temperature at the interior is higher. If we indeed do simulations with higher interior temperatures, we don't get methane. This has all to do with chemical re- reactions and chemical equilibrium, artistic equilibrium. So that's one of the hypotheses. Eh? It might also be, and then it, we, become, we jump primarily to the, to the other point that you are making, is that... There is methane, but that we don't see it since it's hidden by a cloud. We, we have seen in this data that there, that there are clouds in the atmosphere of the planet. Before we went into the study, we did knew already that there were clouds, but we could not tell you anything on the chemical composition of the clouds. What you can see is when a planet has clouds, I was telling you in the beginning that we see these spectral fingerprints. When you have clouds, it is as if these fingerprints are cut. So what we did see in the data is we did see very, in previous data, we did see very weak fingerprints of, for instance, water vapor. So there was already an indication of clouds, but we could not tell you anything on the chemical composition of the clouds. Now with the James Webb data, we have looked at other wavelengths, and that all these other things allowed us to determine the chemical composition of the clouds and these seems to be according to our analysis to our analysis silicate clouds so they are not made made of water vapor as the clouds here on Earth but they are made of, of small but we think more amorphous not glassy but amorphous silicate particles a bit as sand here uh, the sand particles here on Earth
1: so I assume because you say it's so warm there that it's or we assume it's not possible to have life there?
0: No, it cannot. It, it is a gaseous planet. Not so we cannot live there, not at all. The temperature of this 500 degrees Celsius wouldn't fit us either. Uh, so it's not possible to have life as we know it, uh, to have it there.
1: And is it common in your kind of research to compare exoplanets to planets we know from our solar system?
0: Yeah, since that's, that's the, the main benchmark that we have. Yeah? For the, the, the planets in our own system, solar system, we have much more data available, available than what we have for these exoplanets. So it will be weird not to compare to our knowledge and to our data that we have here on the solar system uh, planets.
1: Yeah, of course. But I assume you might also find planets that have nothing or close to nothing in common with the planets in our solar system.
0: Huh? Yeah, 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 true. Our own our own solar system is only one benchmark, eh? and so that's a very limited viewpoint. So by looking to these exoplanets, we, we detect a zoo of exoplanets that don't have any resemblance to what we know here from our own solar system planets.
1: And what are some of the weirdest planets that have been discovered? You already mentioned a planet where it's raining glass. Uh, are there some other special ones?
0: Oh, you we have well. This last 107 seven B is very fluffy. It's a very thin thin, thin uh, atmosphere. We see, we think we have detected uh, planets where there's a lot of carbon available. So we have a, more carbon than oxygen. Well, most of the planets have more oxygen than carbon. And then, yeah, we have planets that are potentially, and then that's always exciting in the habitable zone of their star. But we don't know for sure. We don't know if whether there's life. Habitable does not mean habitat and that's still something different so we have a lot of things that we can wonder about
1: and is it also part of your research looking at the possibility of life on exoplanets
0: that's always the question that you get eh? but uh we only let's say discuss it as an astronomer you discuss it in terms of habitable what we just were saying if the temperatures might be potentially right uh, for life to form, also in particular when you think that there might be liquid water, which is very important as a catalysator for a lot of chemical reactions that can um, lead to life-forming processes. So that is, let's say, the, the very limited astronomers' perspective. Huh? For sure, these data are taken, and also sometimes the next step, but people more into chemistry and biologists, But that's a very that's with a lot of uncertainties eh? since our knowledge is extremely well it's very much centered on what we know here on Earth. So to broaden up that perspective, to understand chemical reactions that you have never seen here on Earth, is challenging. And so we try to do that from that's a lot of chemical let's say quantum chemical work that we are doing, a lot of theoretical work, trying to extrapolate to understand how. Uh, chemical reactions occur in these extreme environments, but you also understand that there are a lot of uncertainties involved there.
1: We basically have a sample size of one, which is Earth.
0: Yes, and part of that, <laughs> we yeah. a lot.
1: And people that are looking for life on exoplanets, what, what are they looking for then?
0: Well. Mm, We don't look for, well, looking for life on exoplanets is a dangerous thing here. we look
1: or looking for the possibility of life.
0: Looking for the possibility of life is what we then are doing is is based on what we know in the thermodynamics, put that into a model and see whether it can proceed towards some life-forming processes. But we even don't understand how life has formed here on Earth, let alone that we would think we have a clever answer on how life can form on exoplanets.
1: There are a lot of exoplanets and we assume that there is life on other planets, but if there is, why haven't they contacted us yet?
0: What is important there is that you have there that very, let's say, call it a deterministic view on the fact that life is intelligent or that other life can be intelligent, dependent on the definition that we have made ourselves. And that these other creations would be interested even in in exploring the universe and in having technologies that can explore the universe. And so there are many steps going from life towards exploration of the universe. And so what I think is it's a bit very chauvinistic to think along those ways, since Well, isn't it a sign of of chauvinism to have, let's say, defined, and we did it ourselves, a kind of an imaginary ladder of progression, culminating in something that we call Homo sapiens, eh? which are much praised intelligence. We are really branding ourselves as being the smartest of the universe, but why not define, for instance, an evolutionary ladder based on other criteria? For instance can you fly without external aids and how good are you in doing that when you would have that definition we would not be at the top of that imagining ladder but so we are very good in branding ourselves and we are the most intelligent people of the, of the most intelligent creations of the universe etc so isn't that very chauvinistic and maybe we should you know, we can always we can discuss these things. Should we do it based on intelligence? Should we do use the other criteria? So then the question is, what makes us unique as homo sapiens? Are we really intelligent, eh, that sapiens are, are, are not? I think we should go... Well, we should maybe, maybe if we want to be unique as Homo sapiens, we maybe should rephrase ourselves a bit and say that we are Homo sentient. Eh? That what makes us unique is consciousness, is wonder, is curiosity, is trying to understand the universe. Eh? Since it's it's wonder that is the beginning of wisdom. Eh? And then potentially we can call ourselves sapiens, eh? but linked then to what I was saying, sentience, and not only towards that pure let's say intelligence criteria that most of the people are, are using.
1: Okay. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. So you also, you, you study astrophysics, but why do you study astrophysics? Is it important for the general population?
0: Wherever I go. And when I tell that I'm studying or that I'm doing astrophysics, people are always interested. I have been in Africa. I have been in South America. Uh, two years ago, for instance, we went to Peru. And when the catcher were realizing that I was doing astrophysics and my husband is doing as an engineer, they were not interested in the fact that he was an engineer, but they were interested in astrophysics. And so they asked me to explain a bit on, on stars and stellar evolution. And I tried also to do that in a way that I did not touch their, their view on the universe. But you can always, what what is the conclusion for me on that is that People need more than bread and butter. Huh? People want to know what is the place of humanity in the universe. Independent on where you come from, independent on how you have been educated. And so this is for me a very important answer on why do we do astrophysics since I want to understand what is our place in this very big in that immense universe.
1: And how did you get interested in this topic?
0: That's mere coincidence, eh, in the sense that uh, I did my education here at the KU Leuven. And so the people that have educated me were working in the field of stellar evolution, not yet planets. eh? And so um, that is, you know, education is important at that stage. And so throughout the years, then I decided as the first person here in KU Leuven to also starts working on these exoplanets. And now we have a bigger team working on exoplanets. But as a team within the kai leuven the Institute of Astrophysics, we have decided to to have that focus on stellar evolution and exoplanets. So in the past, it was only stellar evolution, stellar evolution and exoplanets. We do not, for instance, go into galaxy formation. We have decided to have that very strong expertise and that makes us unique in the world. So we attract the best scientists just from the fact that we are really focused and we can, you know, we have a lot of people working on similar topics so we can share knowledge. And so this is why we proceed much faster than anybody else um, in the world on these topics since we we have that critical mass here in Leuven to work on these topics.
1: It sounds like a very smart decision, actually. I think so. Before we close, do you have a take-home message for our listeners?
0: Use your curiosity to understand the universe.
1: This was the 26th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Léa for the information. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.